Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. I don't know if navigation is a good thing or a bad thing on your vehicles. In the springtime, we were going to a wedding in South Carolina, and I decided for the first time, you know what, I'm just going to follow the navigation, because I rarely do. If you're anything like me, the navigation will come up, and you're like, oh, nope, you're wrong. I know a better way. I do that all the time, but not this time. This time, I let the old nav system tell me where to go. So we're coming up on Atlanta, got a car full of people. We're driving, and it says, traffic up ahead, rerouting. Now, if you've ever been to, tra- uh, to Atlanta or driven through Atlanta, you know that traffic is really what Atlanta is all about, and that there is no rerouting around traffic in Atlanta, particularly if everybody else is using the same nav system or a similar nav system, and they're all rerouting in the same way. Now the rerouting becomes the bad route, and the original route becomes the good route, and now you're stuck on the bad route, and so you get rerouted again. So we end up getting rerouted around 285, which is the circle around, and we're not on it five minutes. Traffic ahead, rerouting. So, okay, now it's rerouting us to this highway that goes through the middle of the city. I don't even remember which one it was. And here we go, rerouted through the city. We get on there, and then here it goes again. Traffic ahead, rerouting. Now we're on a, not a highway, but a street going through parts of Atlanta I've never been through and never want to go through again. And it's rerouting us this whole time. And, and then it puts us out in downtown Atlanta. So had we gone from 285 to downtown Atlanta on our own, it would have taken maybe 15, 20 minutes. As it was, we were an hour in, and it dumps us off just north of downtown, right after you come through the tunnel. And I'm like, you have got to be freaking kidding me. I was ready to shoot the passenger next to me. It was Billy. It was my father. (laughs) I, I just was picking on him. I would not do that to you, Dad especially after you gave me the blue expo marker. Thank you. (laughs) But my father was in the seat, and he could tell I was getting frustrated, and he was like, now, Todd, it's going to be okay. (laughs) And then he reached down in his back. Does he have his green backpack? He reached down in his backpack, the green... Would you like some nuts? <laughs> no, Dad, I'm sitting next to one. Well, here, I got a little Debbie for you. <laughs> nope, not into the little Debbie either, Father. I'm good. Just want to get through Atlanta. <laughs> uh. And when we finally got back on the interstate, it was an hour later. And we had like another 40 minutes to get through Atlanta. It was an hour and 45 minutes to get through Atlanta 
all because I followed the nav system. And here's what I thought about as I contemplated what that was all about, was the navigation is trained to do one thing and one thing only, find the quick way out, right? It's trying to find the quick way out. But the navigation system doesn't really understand the quick way out. It's just trying to find the shortest, quickest way from point A to point B. And here's the thing. A lot of us act like navigation systems. We're constantly looking for the short, quick, easy way out. And what we end up doing is ending up in parts of Atlanta we don't want to be in. Today we're going to look at a passage and we're going to look at two men. Any guesses on those two men? Very good, Saul and David. Gosh, can y'all not see over here? Can you see in the back? You can see? Okay. Now, just a fair warning, I'm a horrible speller. And so, there's probably going to be a misspelled word on here at some point. That's okay, just go with it, all right? Saul and David. So, we're going to do this a little bit differently today, too. Today, I'm going to invite you into the process of this passage and looking at what it means. And I'm going to do that for a reason. I do this from time to time with you guys because... Whether you realize it or not, by me doing this, I'm giving you a little tool that you can use in your personal reflection and Bible study time, or when you're reading Scripture on a daily basis, this is a tool you can take into that. So one of the main things you look for when you're looking at passages is meaning from the structure. Structure has huge meaning to the biblical writers, the way they... The way they um, they structured their passages, even the way they structured their histories. Understand that in Scripture, they didn't do chronological history. Did you know that? I've told you that before. You might not have remembered that or might not have ever heard that. It wasn't one thing happened after the other happened the other. Oftentimes, they would tell their history around themes. or They would tell their history in chunks. And you might go for a 100-year period here, then go to a different 50-year period and back to the next 50-year period that matched this, 50, uh, this 100 years. It's all over the page with that, but they did that for very specific reasons. Because it was through their structure that they relayed the importance of the subject matter. It was through structure that they found meaning. So one of the big things that you notice in Scripture as you're reading it is something called comparing and contrasting. This is a tool that we've been using since the beginning of humanity. We compare how things are similar and we contrast how things are different. Today we're going to look at a contrast. It's a huge part of this section of Scripture we're going to look at. It's the contrast between Saul and David. So we're continuing the story of David and today's Scripture is in 1 Samuel 18. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 16. 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 16. <clears throat> We've just come off of David's defeat of Goliath. That's what we talked about last week. And this is really the next major pericope after that, the next story, the chunk of Scripture that comes after the Goliath story. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 18, or you can follow on the screen or on your smart device. Uh, it's verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, Goliath, 
the, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. I want to stop here before we get to what they were saying. This was not uncommon after a victory. In fact, there are some scholars who say that there was a group of women in cities that their job was to celebrate things like this. It was kind of like the cheer squad, right? And they did this. It wasn't their full-time job, but they did this kind of part-time or on the side. This was what they did. When things, major things happened, this cheer squad would come out and celebrate. And so Saul and David and whoever else is in this entourage are coming through the town, and there's a celebration. <clears throat> and these women come out to celebrate, and one of the things that they would do is they would create a rhyme or a couplet or poetry. Now understand that Hebrew poetry, the Old Testament was hit, written in Hebrew. Old Testament poetry is all about couplets it's not ne- and meter. It's not necessarily about rhyme the way we rhyme. When you hear poetry, poetry you think of rhyming or you think about um, a haiku or something like that. Well, this was all about meter, how the words were said, how many syllables in a line, and all about couplets how these two things go together next to each other. So, this is actually a very popular kind of couplet. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, we're going to look at what's odd about this in a second. But this is a very common way to say that Many people were slayed in the victory of the Israelites. Saul has struck down his thousands and David is ten thousands. It doesn't mean that David is greater than Saul. It just means that they both struck down their thousands. This was a technique. Do you see this all the time? He gave, uh, you know, he gave gold and he, he gave a thousand pieces of gold and ten thousand pieces of, of uh, silver or whatever. And they, they use this, this numbering as a way to just say it was a great amount. So the way this couplet would normally work, though, would be Saul has struck down his thousands and the king his ten thousands. In other words, Saul would have been the subject in both lines. The king has struck down his thousands and Saul has struck down his ten thousands. It's the same person in both lines. But this time it's not. And this is problematic. This is the only place in Scripture where the subject of the couplets is not the same. Saul and David. Again, it's not saying they could switch it out. They could say David has struck down his thousands and Saul his ten thousands. That's not the problem. The number isn't the problem here. Although to us it feels like that. The real problem is they're equating Saul and David. They're saying, Saul the king is great, and David, yeah, he's just as great. And so the battle begins. Things turn south really quickly here. David, who was the guy that the king loved more than anybody else but his son, has now become as good or as great in the eyes of the people. And Saul, verse 8, was very angry 
And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? Now again, when Saul points this out, he now does bring in the numbers. Normally, the big problem would have been, I'm being equated with him. But Saul sees that as a problem and then adds, and if they're going to do this more or less, I should be the one with ten thousands and David should be the one with thousands. So he does personally take the number as an affront. So now he's doubly offended. He's offended that David has been put on the same level as him, and he's offended that if he's going to be put on the same level as me, that at least I should have the ten thousands and he should have the thousands. Y'all following that? So now he is looking for ways to be offended, and he's mad. He's angry. Right away we see, if you're looking at this and reading this, okay, here is a contrast. David versus Saul. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. So this is, this is a way of saying he looked at him with suspicion and he was watching him. It's kind of like the evil eye. From that day on, Saul had it out for David. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. So we were told this earlier, that David was brought in to the inner circle of Saul, and that he would play his stringed instrument and sing for Saul to calm him down. And he did that every day. But this time, Saul had his spear in hand. Verse 11, and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So let's start the contrast here. There's something that I think is important. Go back one verse to verse 10 if you don't mind. What's in David's hand? An instrument, right? What's in Saul's hand? When you're studying Scripture, that contrast should give meaning to the Scripture. What do you think he's trying to say here? I mean, obviously this is what's happening But why is this contrast important? What's it tell you about the two characters? Open mic. Peace and war. What else? Yeah. Tells you, yeah, where their heart was. Because if he's playing the lyre, when when he played this instrument and sang... What was he doing? What was, what was it that he produced? What kind of music? Praise and worship, right? That is an R, trust me. <clears throat> Why does Saul have a spear in his hand? Angry and aggressive, right? Right? 
Ag means aggressive, not agriculture. Are you starting to see the difference here? So again, I'm inviting you into this process so that next time you read Scripture, this might be a part of what you do. So that's a very important thing that we notice, that Saul has a spear and David has a a lyre, a a stringed instrument. Now there's something else. What does he do with this spear? He's in anger and aggression. What's he trying to do to David? Well, not quite kill him, but scare him and pin him to the wall, right? So I'm going to tell a story that my parents have heard. Do not repeat this if you're a child in the room. When we were little, we thought it would be cool one day to have our cousin stand up like this and throw darts at him to try to miss him. I never said I was a smart kid or a good kid. And there was poor Tom. Well, let's just say we weren't very good aims. We thought it would be funny to throw it and to see how close we could get to him. And we got really close. Like, in the hand close. Where we were doing it to kind of be mischievous, this was Saul's way of putting his fear back towards David. He was deflecting his fear so that David would own the fear and not him. That's a little too maybe psychological for you or too much psychology, but I really believe that's part of what he's doing. It's anger and it's his fear and he's trying to put that anger and fear on David and not own it himself. And so here we see that he is trying to harm David. What's David trying to do? Calm and soothe the king. You guys following this? You got the contrast going on here? But David evaded him twice. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David, and here it is, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul understood This is the first time we are told that Saul really understands this. The Lord is with David, and he has left me. Which then brings us up with the ultimate contrast, right? And what is that? The Lord, and the Lord, when you see it in your Bible spelled all caps, what does it mean? Yahweh. It actually means Yahweh. So when you see L-O-R-D in all caps... The actual Hebrew word is Yahweh, the name for God. So it's an intimate name. So Yahweh, the full presence of God was with him. Father, Son, and Spirit was with David. And I'm going to do it like this. The Lord had left and gone here. So... Because of this, because David was this and Saul had become this, Saul has a plan. 
He was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him, removed David from his presence and made him the commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. So here's Saul's plan to take care of David. He understands that there is a contrast and he understands that David is the better man and that David has been anointed by God and that David is the one with the success. And because of all of that, he sends David off with the mighty men and he puts him in charge of a thousand. Why does he do that? Two particular reasons. Bingo. One is he hopes that he will be killed in battle. Because what does he know about, what does he know thus far about David? Well, he's, he knows that he's not a man of, of, of war that way. But what else does he know about him? So he's, he's not been fully trained like the other warriors. What else? He's a threat. What else does he know about David? He's faithful, you said? Oh, favored, yeah. He's favored. He's young. Huh? Well, in that he was in that he was a shepherd. Yeah. Anybody else? That that David has the power of God behind him is what you're saying? Yeah. Someone else? He's a little bit reckless, but I would say it this way. He knows that he's brave. He knows that he was unafraid to face a giant. And he knows that if a leader, anointed by God, favored by God, but yet uneducated and a little bit inexperienced, right, goes off with these mighty men, that he's going to put himself in the front before he puts his men out there. He knows how brave he is. That's one reason. There's a second reason why he sends him away. Yeah, it's, it, so the, yes, all of that plays into this, and I would, the way I would say that that then leads him to just get him away from him so that people aren't contrasting them together constantly. If I just remove David, I don't out of sight, out of mind, people won't remember David, he'll just be out there with the men and hopefully he dies. But David, being all of this stuff and more, isn't like that, right? So he goes out and comes in before the people. And David then had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. 
So the very thing that he tried to do was to put David on the fringe and maybe even kill him, but what it did was elevate David. The people saw him more. They saw he was a man of action and a man of integrity. And they grew more and more in love with David, and Saul was the one that was reduced to the fringe. What Saul and evil meant for harm and bad, God turned to good. And he does that for us. And so here's how I visualize this. Saul was anointed by God, was made king of Israel, and was given everything he needed to be successful, including the presence of God. But he decided that he was going to be disobedient. David started out as a shepherd boy, the least important person in his family, He was on the fringe of his family. When his father was told to gather all his sons, he forgot David. He didn't forget him. He just thought he was so insignificant, he left him out in the field. David was a nobody shepherd from a nowhere town. And yet God chose him because of his faithfulness. And where David started out here... Now, we're going to learn... The David story doesn't just always go up and to the right. He's a despicable person in the future, which is what I love about him. Not the despicable part, but that he's real. So what's the major difference? We wrote all of the differences here, but what does it all lead to? It was even on the, the, the lips of Saul himself. What is the major difference between Saul and David and where their paths intersect and go different ways? God's presence, is that what someone, yeah. So, God's presence, the Lord was with David. And from that point on, what about for Saul? The Lord left. Saul was motivated by selfishness and his own desires. Saul became very self-centered, and so he was disobedient. Saul then, because of that, looked around at the world around him, and he saw all the other kings in the Middle East. And and he looked at them and, and saw, well, they're all... They're all selfish despots. It's all about them and their power, and they do whatever they want to keep that power, whatever they have to to keep their power and to grow their power. I'm just going to be like them. So it was his selfishness, and it was the world, and then we find out later it was the spirit of evilness. You know, Paul says something about this, that temptation comes from three places. Our broken selfishness, 
the world, and the evil one. We face the same three things that Saul did. We have the opportunity, like Saul, to be motivated, motivated by the world and what it says is right, by selfishness, what we want, and by evil, when we let the evil one dominate and control us. And all of that led to Saul's downfall. But David, on the other hand, who had nothing to begin with, offered what he did have and said, take me and use me, God. Whatever you want of me, I will do. I'm your man. Just here I am. He was motivated by the Spirit. He was motivated by himself, the world, and evil. And it led to brokenness and destruction. Guys, this is our battle too. It's your battle. It's my battle. We all go through this. What is our driving force? What guides us every day? Is it the Lord and His Spirit and His guidance? Or is it, are we looking around at what everybody else is doing? Oh, yeah, well, they're doing, oh, I'm good. That's, this is normal. Are we motivated by selfishness? Well, I really want this, and so I'm really going to go after this. And I don't care what anybody else says or even what Scripture says. This is what I want. Are we motivated by evil? By anger and fear and hate. That's what Saul was. When we try to do it ourselves, when we let the world, evilness, and selfishness guide us, we're taking the shortcut. Rerouting. Rerouting. Hard times up ahead. Rerouting. Difficult situation. Rerouting. Ooh, shiny thing I want to follow. Rerouting. Power. Rerouting. Lust. Rerouting. Picket. I don't know what it is, but... There are all these things that have been programmed into the nav system and it is rerouting us if we let it. Instead, we need an intelligent person with both hands on the wheel steering us the right direction. Not some pre-programmed piece of machinery. Too often we act like the nav system where we've got a God who says, nah, trust me, I've been all over this place. I know exactly where you're going, and I got you. We've got a God who wants to take the steering wheel if we let him, but too often we say, oh yeah, come on, here's a passenger seat just for you, Jesus. Why don't you do a ride along in my life? You can be here, but I'm still in control. I want you here. I, 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 I really do. I want you present, but I don't want you driving. I want you, you know, talking to me and entertaining me and having conversation with me and, and giving me great little quotes and quips, but I really don't want you to tell me which way to go. I don't need a backseat driver, Jesus. And when we do that, we end up like Saul. It leads 
to our own demise and destruction. So, who's driving you? We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.